during this uh, <clears throat> retreat time, I, I'm staying over at the, in one of the teacher cottages at the forest refuge. So I, I commute through the woods to come in the mornings and various times during the day. And this morning I was walking over through the woods and, um, and I saw there's something caught my eye about the way the, the water was, was resting on the branches and twigs. I, I mentioned this to a few people and uh, told this story in some of the meetings today. It caught my eye for some reason. There's some quality there. And I, I looked a little closer and, and reached out to touch some of the, the droplets there. And they were, they were in this state where they were between water and ice. It was like honey or nectar. There was a thickness to the water and I could touch them and they, the way they moved and the way it was staying on the branches and just, just a little warmer and it would have fallen off as water and a little colder and it would have uh, hardened more completely into ice. It was that, that place right in between and I had never touched it. There was something amazing about touching the water droplets in that in-between state. And this appreciation of in-betweenness there and, and not having to pin it down as you know, something else. It, not maybe quite water, not quite ice, something. There's not a name, I don't know. Maybe there is a name. Maybe the scientists have a name for, for it. And I, there was this magical quality there. I'm not sure what this has to do with the subject of tonight's talk. Nothing, I think, actually. <laughs> um, but I've given myself permission to um, not have everything <laughs> have to do with anything else necessarily. But there is something magical there and I hope it's useful to your minds <laughs> something about yeah appreciating appreciating that in between not knowing maybe it applies to our practice can we rest sometimes in between and not have to pin things down so much and say it's this or it's that it's something that we don't have a name for it we don't have to always know what it is. There's some place, I can't remember where I, I read or heard this, um, but it said that there, our practice unfolds and, and there are kind of four ways that the practice unfolds. It's said to either be slow and easy or slow and difficult or quick and easy or quick and difficult. And I think most of us, certainly, I would put myself in the slow and difficult category. <laughs> and it's probably true for a lot of us, you know. And I remember once practicing in Asia, one of my teachers there, and it was, I forget the length of the retreat, it was six or eight weeks. And, and I think in an attempt to inspire us, the, the uh, teacher said, you know, this should be plenty of time for you to get the job done. <laughs> you know, six weeks, you know, it should be anyone who's really practicing diligently should be able to realize at least the first stage of enlightenment. And, and um, I, I realize it was an attempt 
you know, and there was maybe a cultural thing there. <laughs> it was an attempt to inspire us to make good effort, but it was, um, you know, it kind of set things up to fail. <laughs> um, but it's also said that, that we fall into kind of four categories of, uh, of movement, of moving from darkness to more darkness, moving from darkness to light, from light to darkness and from light to light. And it's said the criteria for moving towards light from wherever we might be is said to be uh, engaging in good conduct of body, speech, and mind. So you could say, in essence, if we're practicing mindfulness, bringing awareness to our lives, uh, doing our best to live a conscious, ethical life, then then that's the, that's the criteria f- to be said to be moving towards light. And I think we can all safely say, no matter how slow and difficult we might feel ourselves to be as yogis in that category, I think we can all safely say that we are moving towards light in this direction of peace, freedom, ease. And Bhikkhu Bodhi once said uh, this, I think it's really beautiful to bear in mind. He said, liberation is the inevitable fruit of the path and is bound to blossom forth where there is steady and persistent practice. The only requisites for reaching the goal are two, to start and to continue. If these requirements are met, there's no doubt the goal will be attained. So we've all started and we're all continuing in our way. And it might take a while, I have a feeling that's likely for me, but, but there is this sense of the inevitable movement towards some greater understanding. And I think it's good to reflect on this once in a while, on this movement, this movement to light, and, and to bring to mind all of the wholesome actions in our lives, the power of our intention. You could say all the, all the beautiful seeds we're planting in our practice, seeds of every time, the moment of mindfulness, another seed that gives birth to another moment of mindfulness, a moment of kindness in the heart, planting that seed. I think it's um, good to reflect on this, bring to mind the power of these intentions, these seeds we plant and all we do in this cultivation of mindfulness. And this, this image, this metaphor of planting seeds for the practice, it's used a lot and I think it's really useful. And, and it's especially apt for um, looking at the, the teachings and reflections on the teachings of, of kamma or karma, uh, teachings that run throughout the Buddha's uh, through the, throughout the teachings, throughout the suttas in different places. And it's, it's a central theme in, in what the Buddha taught, the understanding of karma, of kamma. And, and there's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding, I think, about it. So I'll offer some reflections, just some perspectives. This is a big topic. I think some of the reason that there is often confusion and misunderstanding has at least in part to do with the fact that the word has become so much kind of part of the common uh, language, the common vernacular 
over the last decades, and you know it's come into the into the language. It's um, used a lot, and but often in a very casual way that maybe has some connection to what it's about, but I think it often may reinforce a superficial or even confused uh, relationship to what it's really about. And, you know, we hear things, instant karma's gonna get you, a line from a song, and good karma, references to good karma and bad karma. And Bonte was talking about his uh, bumper stickers he likes. I've seen a bumper sticker that says, my karma just ran over your dogma. (laughs) You know, and it's, it's kind of silly, but there's some something there <laughs> about this idea, this concept. Sometimes it's in the in the language in our in our minds and uh, there in in ways that that don't use the word karma, but the 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 idea, you know, as you sow, so shall you reap, and what goes around comes around, and references like this that have some relationship to what the Buddha was teaching perhaps, but um, often stay perhaps on the surface or reflect a kind of oversimplification of these teachings. And the subject of karma is very uh, directly, intimately connected to uh, the subject of rebirth, which also leads to a lot of questions, confusion in people's minds, especially in the West where we, we tend to it's not in our culture tradition to think of rebirth and it has no meaning for a lot of us. But these teachings are quite inseparable in, in the uh, Buddhist tradition, in the Buddha's teachings. And, and questions come up about on the subject of rebirth and, and it, do I have to uh, decide to believe in it? Do I have to believe in this? It doesn't mean anything to me. If there's no self, well, then what, what or who is reborn? You know, who is, who is experiencing the fruits of past actions? How does that tie into this? And is, is suffering in my life the result of something I did in some past life and my fault somehow? And there can almost sometimes be a, this kind of almost feeling of blame in that as though karma functions sort of like fate or, or some kind of force or energy that emerges out of the past that we're somehow responsible for, powerless to do anything about. And, and it, it, it leads to confusion in the heart and the mind. And you hear others, or we are, hear ourselves or someone say, well, I guess it's just my karma. And it, it's this kind of fatalistic uh, attitude in that that points, I think, to a, a misunderstanding, at least not a hel- helpful way to hold this, this teaching. And I think we need to be very careful that we don't use the teachings and the reflections on karma to, as a way to account for our present circumstances, at least not to be careful with that, or to address issues in the world or in our lives, illness or uh, our, our circumstances of life or social injustice or poverty or anything like that and point to it and say it's just, it's karma as though uh, everything can be reduced down to this and, and though, as though people sort of deserve their circumstances in some way. You know, it, this is a misguided a misinterpretation of this teaching that causes harm, adds to confusion, adds to suffering. You know, it, 
It leads us to say that as though beings deserve their situation, deserve, don't, under, don't merit our attention or care or kindness somehow. We can use the reflection as an excuse for indifference or not caring. It's not, never the point of this teaching. And we can't use, I think it's a mistake to ever think that we can use uh, the teachings on karma, karma as, as a, some reflective kind of device that we can use to account for the reasons why life is unfolding the way it does. I don't think um, the Buddha intended the teachings to be used this way. At least a lot of care needs to be exercised in that. But what the teachings do help us do and where they have real power in our lives, real potential, real possibility, is that they allow us to focus on how we respond to life, to what we encounter. They can serve as a kind of focal point for looking at the choices we decide to make, our response to life. And this is a key understanding, I think, when we uh, try to explore this topic in, in any way. Because the functioning of, of cause and effect in the world is vast and very complex. Uh, Gil Fransdahl, a teacher in California, likened it to a field, or he used the image of an ocean, spoke of the ocean of cause and effect, which I think is a, it's a, I like the, the image because it, it touches the vastness and complexity. And we could see that this ocean of cause and effect is composed of this vast network of causal threads or ripples that constantly uh, shift, rebound, inform one another. And uh, karma, volitional actions, and the fruits of them are one part. They're, uh, they're a thread in that complexity. This is from Gill. The image I have is of a pond where you take a pebble and throw it in and you get one ripple. And if you throw a lot of pebbles in, the ripples start hitting each other and the ripples that are hitting each other make further ripples and further ripples. And you get an amazing pattern of them. And where's the cause and effect relation in that? It becomes very hard to tease it all apart because the way things bump into each other makes it very complex. So I like this image of, of ripples rebounding and their new ones are constantly going in, constantly going in. So to, to account for the way things are right now in the present, you'd have to trace every thread of causation back to beginningless time. It, it's an impossibility to tease that apart. It's, it's considered, I, I believe it's one of the things that are considered imponderables. And, and if you think about it too much, your head will explode into, I think, seven pieces. So, so be careful here. You know. <laughs> there goes one back there. <laughs> Another one over there. We don't want to have the, the mess to clean up. So be very careful. And there's a lot of actions. We, we actions... There are things that happen in the actions that we do that, that do not have this um, arena of intention. You know, here, here's a, 
here's a hypothetical kind of example for, we, we decide to take a walk around the loop. So there's the intention to take a walk. And, and because of the weather, leaves have been blown across the, the road and we're walking along and we, the leaves have covered over uh, one of those woolly caterpillars that we see this time of year sometimes. And, and through no intention, we, we uh, accidentally step on and kill the caterpillar, right? So there's no karmic weight from doing that. It was, no, there was no intention to harm. Our intention is probably to not harm any being. That's in our heart. But this happens. We didn't see it. This happens all the time. We're big and a lot of things are small and we don't see them. We can't live without harming in that way. But the intention is what's uh, the critical uh, thing to look at. The, what's the intention, the motivation that's there in the mind. But there is this, this um, cause and effect that can happen. So then, you know, someone is coming behind us, walking behind us, and they see where, where, where we've stepped. There's some leaf blows away and they see it and they don't know what it is. And they step aside and they trip and fall and uh, hurt themselves or break their leg. And, and you hear them call out, you're walking along. And, and you turn around and it's the object of your, your, your Vipassana romance. Right, and you, you rush to the rescue and, and you help them, you know, and you get them to the hospital and you make a connection en route and you fall in love. And, and on the way to getting married, you say, well, let's buy a lottery ticket for fun and it's the winning ticket. And, and you get married and live happily ever after. And there's this thread of cause there. And, you know, there's some intentionality as part of that, but it's a very complex thread of causation there. <laughs> you know, so the caterpillar is part of this, this chain of causation. It's, it's in there. Things happen, rebounding, and, and, the, and the unfolding of karma is part of that. It's in there, it's woven in there, it's one of the fre- threads, there are other factors. So we could say that when the Buddha looked at the vast complexity of this ocean of causation, of cause and effect, he chose to focus on this aspect of intentionality, this area of intention, for a very, uh, very clear, a very particular reason. And this leads us to look at the literal meaning of the word karma or kamma in Pali, which often gets overlooked. We often use the word kamma to point to what is actually kama vipaka. Kama means action. Kama vipaka is a fruit of action. I'll say more about this, but this is essential consideration for us when we're looking at this teaching because all actions, any action we take, whether actions of bodily actions, actions of speech, actions in the mind, they all have their genesis in the mind, the heart. Mind is the forerunner of all things in this way. The mental factor of intention that we've spoken about in various ways, pointing to it in, in instructions and talks, the, the word for that in Pali is chetana. You don't have to remember this stuff. But this factor of intention is is um, key to understanding what we mean by karma. And it's this energy of volition that uh, leads to karmic results. And the Buddha stressed this in 
uh, one place he said, intention, I tell you, is kamma. Intending one does kamma, one acts by way of body, speech, or mind. Now this chetana intention is in and of itself neutral in terms of karma or kama, but there are other mental factors that arise that color or flavor it. We could call it the motivation that accompanies the intention. So for example, the intention to do something might be colored by greed, hatred, delusion, by love, generosity, by wisdom, by kindness, and so on. So this motivational quality there is the key. The karmic weight or power is not found within the action. The same action might have a very different uh, motivational energy behind it. So for example, the, the action of starting a fire the same action could be used to, um, you know, create warmth to, to keep your, your family warm in some situation where you need to build a fire for warming uh, to survive, to stay warm. Or you could be setting fire to a, a building committing an act of arson for a very different motivation there. One might be wholesome, one unwholesome. We might uh, use a, a crowbar a piece of metal or an ax and break down a doorway to a building. And in one case, we're um, going in to rob the place. And another, it might be someone who's trying to get into, um, uh, during a, uh, maybe there's a fire and they're trying to get someone out who's trapped inside. So it would be, a, the, the action looks the same, but but the uh, the motivation behind it is totally different in those kinds of examples. So just as, and you're going back to this image of a seed that I've been using uh, to uh, illustrate some, some of this, uh, the idea of planting seeds. A single seed has this potential to uh, bring about, you know, a flowering plant or even a tree, which then produces hundreds, thousands of more seeds or fruits, flowers and fruits. And intention functions that way. There's a lot can follow on from a single seed that is planted in the mind and the heart. And the understanding in the, in the unfolding of karma, of karma is that actions, intentions that um, are accompanied by, born of a wholesome motivation, yield beneficial, wholesome, pleasant results. And those that are accompanied by uh, something unskillful will tend to lead to suffering, stress, and difficulty. And so the reason the Buddha chose, I think, to focus on intentional action is because a wise understanding of how this functions is potentially very empowering for us because we have the chance to decide what kinds of seeds. Do we want to plant the seeds of future happiness or unhappiness? You know, we have a choice there. There is a way that we can um, add into this flow, this flow of causation. So the Buddha encouraged, encouraged us to, to look at this and, and to take responsibility for the choices we make. Because we can have some influence, we can have an impact here. And we can't have absolute 
an absolute effect or anything like an ultimate kind of control because things happen that are outside our control and the um, it's a very complex web here that we're speaking about, these ripples and the way they inform one another. And it's not useful ever to say that if we or someone gets sick or has an accident that it's just all down to karma. And we can't fathom this this, the complexity of this. But how we respond to sickness or accident in the moment, that's where we have, that's the, the locus of our practice, that's where we can add into this, where we can have an effect. And this is where we could say, this is the, the realm of the spiritual life in many ways, in terms of the choices we make. Someone, I think it might have been Joseph, or maybe it was um, in a talk I heard by, by Guy Armstrong, or I don't know, someone, one of, uh, someone who was teaching once referred to uh, karma as the science of happiness, which I thought was a beautiful way of looking at it. If we really understand it, then we can see that it is a recipe for happiness, for human happiness right now, for what we might call sort of a heavenly kind of happiness and the happiness of liberation ultimately. And so in this ocean of cause and effect, of causation, each moment impacts and conditions subsequent moments. There's this, um, like in some of the examples I've given. And, and the key understanding to this in terms of kama is that there's a lawfulness to this. It's not just a series of random events. It's actually uh, lawful. It may be very complex, but there's a lawfulness to it. And, and um, you know, it's, it's like we could liken it very directly to like the laws, law of nature, or the way nature unfolds. And uh, going back to the image of a seed, if we plant a certain kind of seed, if we plant hollyhock seeds, we're gonna get hollyhocks. We're not gonna get daisies. It's lawful, we'll get a certain kind of seed, of plant from a certain seed. And the teachings on Kama point to the same lawfulness, the same lawful unfolding. And it applies to the way actions yield results within one lifetime, they bear fruit lawfully within one lifetime and over, over uh, lifetimes. Now, as I was saying, the idea of rebirth might not be meaningful to us. And for some people, it, it brings up a lot of resistance just even entertaining the idea. But luckily, we don't have to believe in rebirth to understand how karma works, how this uh, process works. We can see it unfolding within uh, this just one lifetime, moment by moment. There's a kind of famous I- image that's used sometimes to talk about the subject of, of rebirth. And the image is, is of using a candle to light another candle. So you have a, a candle that's burning and you can move it along and light another candle with it. Now, what's, what happens there? We, we, don't take, we don't take the flame off and put it onto. It's not the same flame. We didn't take it and put it over there. But there's, a, there's an effect that happens and it's a lawful effect. We, we don't get something other than a flame when we do that. We get the next flame, it comes along. But there's no thing 
that is passed along, nothing left behind, nothing as a thing. So we haven't taken the flame off and put it on there, but there is this conditioning, lawful effect. And so when we ask a question, who or what is reborn? We need to be careful that we're not solidifying this process of conditioning into, to put thing, turn it into things, thingness, to make it into a thing. The pro- this process is a process of conditioning. One mind moment conditioning the next, conditioning the next, it moves along. So our actions in this life have a conditioning effect on future life, whether we see this as taking birth in each moment or over multiple lifetimes. It doesn't really matter. We don't have to land anywhere in terms of belief with that. There's a connection, a conditioning effect, but there's not something (laughs) that's moving along that's the same thing. So the key understanding is that that there's this lawful conditioning process in this. Uh, the teacher Chogyang Trungpa, was, he was famously quoted when someone asked him about rebirth, what is reborn? He, reborn, he said, your neuroses. That's what gets reborn. <laughs> it kind of feels like that a lot, doesn't it? You know, until we unhook from that stuff, we're gonna get to look at it, whether we see this over the course of a retreat or a lifetime or multiple lifetimes. There's a well-known uh, sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya where the Buddha is giving instructions to his son Rahula. And this is a short excerpt from, from that sutta. The Buddha asking a question, what do you think Rahula, what is a mirror for? For reflection, sir. In the same way, Rahula, bodily actions, verbal actions, and mental actions are to be done with repeated reflection. Whenever you want to do a bodily action, you should reflect on it. Thus, this bodily action I want to do, would it it lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both? Would it be an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences and painful results? If on reflection you know that it would be unskillful with painful consequences and results, then any bodily action of that sort is absolutely unfit for you to do. But if on reflection you know that it would not cause affliction, then it would be skillful. And you should do it. It is fit for you to do. It would bring wholesome results, wholesome consequences. And then in this teaching, he goes on and uh, instructs Rahula to reflect the same way This is before doing it, check it out then. While doing it, look at it then. And then afterwards, be thorough in this after having done it. And he he speaks, he talks about it, not only bodily actions, but actions of speech, actions of mind. Now we could hear this and, and think, well, you know, this would lead to a life that, where there's no possibility for spontaneous action. You know, we'd always be second-guessing ourselves in some way or living in some state of hypervigilance. But I think we can actually apply this in our lives in a, in a realistic way and, and just see it as an aspect of living a conscious life and a way of learning. You know, we pay attention to the motivations behind the actions we choose. We see what's going on there. And we t- can take responsibility for that. And we might blow it sometimes, but but we, we're at least 
looking at what's happening and learning from that. There's another place where the Buddha spoke about attention to our actions in terms of what he called 10 unwholesome actions to be avoided or abandoned. It's again a a way that we uh, can look and see which things are wholesome, useful, skillful to follow, energies to follow, what we should avoid or abandon, not go that way, not follow. And a lot of these, uh, I'll speak about them briefly, a lot of them are very directly related to uh, the the precepts that we take uh, to live an ethical life. So there are three actions of body to be avoided. Intentionally killing living beings, taking that which is not given or offered, so stealing, and engaging in uh, sexual misconduct, harming with sexual energy. There are four actions of speech to be avoided. Lying, telling an outright falsehood, harsh, abusive speech, malicious speech with the intention to cause division or undermine someone, and useless speech, like gossip, plenty of that going around. A place to pay attention. And then actions of mind, covetousness, desire turned towards uh, what belongs to another, ill will, and wrong view. Not seeing things as they really are. Deluded way of of seeing. I think it's interesting that wrong view is seen as an action of mind to be, pay attention to, to uh, try to be careful there. You know, and there's a lot of ways that right and wrong view are spoken about in, in many ways, but one key way that wrong view is described as has to do with understanding the law of karma, of kama, very directly spoken about this way. Actions born of wrong view arise from a mistaken view of reality that would say that actions do not have consequences. not understanding that actions bear fruit, intentional actions, actions uh, that are born of intention. And this can lead to a heedless behavior with powerful, potentially powerful consequences for us. So we could see these these, uh, 10 actions to be avoided, we could turn them to the positive and see them as um, wholesome motivations. So we might uh, look to uh, renunciation rather than uh, covetousness, letting go rather than the greed to uh, grasp something or kindness as opposed to ill will, things like this. So there we can turn it towards positive motivations that we might see arising in the mind or, or cultivate in the mind and heart. And, and so we have these clear guidelines using uh, the precepts or these uh, actions as guidelines for how, to, how we live in the world. And they can lead to uh, what the Buddha called the bliss of blamelessness. They can lead to a mind and heart that are free of worry and remorse in, in, uh, in terms of our actions. And we can, uh, when we live with care and integrity, we can feel confident about our actions and words. And there's an inner strength and balance of mind that is developed that's very powerful and profound in our lives. And, and the text, texts speak of one 
being able to go into any assembly of, be, of people anywhere and feel blameless, feel strength, confidence there. It's said that only a Buddha can fully understand, really understand the workings of karma within a single lifetime or over the course of multiple lifetimes. But we can get a sense for how it unfolds. Some simple examples I'll give. A very common experience on retreat uh, that many of you have reported, I've seen in my own practice, is uh, there will be times when it seems something is sort of unlocked and, and there'll be a flood of memories that come, almost like a review of one's life. And uh, sometimes they can be, there may be memories of things we, we didn't know, we had no previous recollection of. Sometimes they can be difficult memories of unskillful past actions and there can be a lot of remorse that comes. I remember uh, having memories come um, like many kids, maybe little boys more than girls, um, there was a time when I, I was very cruel to insects as a child. I was kind too, it was an odd mix there because I wasn't afraid of them and I would rescue them sometimes, but I also did horrible things as little boys will do sometimes or kids. And, and this coming up very strongly on retreat at times uh, where I just felt so, so much remorse for the suffering I had caused to these creatures. And see that these, these past actions, that they leave this, this mark, this reverberation in the mind and heart. And, and there can be strong feelings that, that arise that uh, are really difficult. It's, it's interesting, I'm not saying there's a direct relationship here, but I, I, am, I tend to be the favorite food of biting insects. And usually other people are safe if I'm around. I, I'm one of the only people I know who has been bitten by a ladybug. <laughs> More than once. And I had a really funny example. I was traveling in Indi- India with my... With my uh, partner and we, it was late and we'd gotten into a train station. We couldn't find, uh, there was a cricket match and no rooms. We, we finally took a room someplace. Someone helped us find it. And, and all night I was just, I was bitten unbelievably by bed bugs. And I'd turn on the light and I could see them run away and I'd catch them and put them out. And, and then, you know, just, it was all night. And my partner just slept right through. Not, would not have known there was a bed bug in, in the room. <laughs> it was uh, guarding, so I, I don't know. I won't say it's because of uh, my tormenting of, my, of insects as a child, but one wonders. But sometimes also, you know, there'll be memories of past wholesome actions, you know, that come into the mind, and there's a very different uh, reverberation from that, the way that resounds in the mind and the mind brightens and there'll be pleasant, happy feelings that come. And so there's this direct uh, way that we can see how the actions that we have done leave their mark. They're impacting our mind states, impacting our meditation very directly there. We can see uh, sort of the present moment workings of uh, karma, of kamma, in terms of how our mental state affects our um, the way others respond to us, you know, and if, if we have uh, 
a lot of anger, envy, or fear in our mind and heart. And we'll get one response if the heart at times, when the heart is filled with, with love, appreciation, generosity, the response we get from others is very, very different. You know, it's just a very direct uh, uh, cause and effect in that. Workings of karma can show up in our experience in terms of what we might um, see as, as kind of habitual mental patterns that uh, lead to predictable kinds of behaviors. We could think of it as, as uh, how personality develops. You know, we usually, we usually think of personality, our own or another's, as something that's just kind of fixed. That's the way we are, that's the way they are, that's their personality, as though it's, it's some kind of fixed way it is. But, but actually what, what happens is that through repeated kinds of actions, actions of all kinds in the mind, we condition the tendency to do those same actions. You know, it's like we, we deepen a kind of groove in the mind. Every time we act, whether it's an action of body, speech, or mind, we're conditioning, we're, it's in, in essence, we're practicing it. We're conditioning the tendency to do it again. And so anytime we act from anger, fear, confusion, we're, we're practicing that, we're reinforcing that tendency to do that again conditioning the, the tendency to do that in another in the future. When we act out of kindness, generosity, then we're practicing that. And so we can intentionally cultivate the wholesome here and, and uh, influence the way things go. We can incline the mind and heart towards what's good and wholesome and useful. We can practice refraining from what is not wholesome and leads to affliction for us. And so mindfulness gives us the possibility to uh, see the motivations that arise in the heart and, and flavor the intentions that we lead to actions. With mindfulness, everything's possible. It's a complete game changer in this way because we have the possibility to see what's going on. It's not always easy to see and it happens very quickly and often our motivations are not that clear or they can be very mixed at times. You know, here's a simple example. Maybe we're sitting late. We're on retreat here. We're sitting up late. The chanting's done. People have started to leave and we're sitting up. And, and, uh, and there's some the f- and tired, tiredness is coming and there are unpleasant feelings that arise because of, of, of the body growing tired. And there's the, the idea comes, it's, it's time to call it a day. There's some wisdom there, the body needs rest. But also the, the, uh, the thought comes, uh, the intention to stay, sit a little longer, kind of push that edge just a little bit longer. Why not? And there's some wisdom there too. It's, it's working that, that edge is, can often be very um, useful. You know, to not just get up uh, as soon as we feel like it's time to. But there might be some... Uh, also, you know, wanting to be the last one so everyone knows how, what a great yogi we are. And we're the last one in the hall, you know, and we're gonna look good, maybe impress others. Or I remember often on retreat, I, I tend to not be a late night person, but an early morning one. And I remember one retreat, I was, I was always the, the first one in, three o'clock in the morning or something. And, and there, there was part of me wanted people to notice, 
You know, what a good yogi I was. And then once when I came and there was someone there before me, uh, you know, it's like, oh no. <laughs> They're not going to know that I'm the best yogi anymore. There's a better one. Maybe we're motivated to make an offering to practice some act of generosity. And there's a pure motivation in the heart for the most part, but maybe it's slightly colored by um, a desire to to look good. We want someone to notice how generous we are, or, or maybe we're hoping that something will come back to us from doing it. So this, this uh, idea that karma can function as a recipe for happiness has to do with the fact that we're given a lot of um, personal responsibility in our lives for the choices that we make. And the choices that we, ch- that we make directly impact the course of our life, the way things flow. And so we begin with our internal world and with, with the motivations. We look at the motivations that are arising in the heart. And, and this understanding is very empowering because we have a choice where we want to go with that. And mindfulness gives us the chance to see what's going on. We bring this to light. And we may not like what we see sometimes. We see greed is running the show here. Delusion, hatred has the upper hand in a moment. But it's even though it might be kind of disappointing sometimes, it's better to see it. We're glad to see it because we have a chance to not just be living out conditioning or old patterns. We have a chance to make a choice there. We can choose when or even if to act. So we have to, again, I want to stress that we have to be careful not to oversimplify things when we look at this teaching and this, this, uh, this understanding. There isn't some one-to-one ratio between action and fruit in any way. And it doesn't mean that if we're really careful, nothing bad will ever happen. You know, the unfolding of, of cause and effect in our lives is very vast and it's constantly changing. And karma, action, and the fruits of those actions, that's... Um, it's one of, of many factors and it's, there's nothing mechanistic or fixed about this. It's uh, dynamic and there are constantly uh, actions and choices and things that happen that are constantly informing uh, the way things go. You know, if we think of the image of a seed again, all sorts of things come into play when we plant a seed, where we plant it, what time of year we plant it whether we took care of it, watered and fertilized it, and so forth. And this is true for our own lives, how we care for them, what we do with it. How we are in the present, how we choose to live now, has a a powerful influence on how kama, the unfolding of, of kama in our life. Goodness in the present tends to draw out the power of past wholesome actions tends to bring it to fruition. There's a dynamism, a dynamic uh, quality here. We can, in essence, uh, we can kind of wrap past unwholesome actions with goodness and wholesome actions in the present. And this has an effect, it's powerful, has a direct influence on things. There's a famous story of, of Angulimala, Many of you have heard the story of Angulimala. He was, his uh, 
Anguli mala means garland of fingers, actually, mala, like a mala beads. It's like garland or a garland of flowers. And he was, uh, his, his actually his name was, Angulimala was name given to him because he became a bad guy, but he was, his, his given name was Ahimsa, which means harmless. But he was misled by uh, a jealous, uh, I believe the story was a, a teacher who was jealous of his abilities and, and his goodness and was somehow convinced through trusting this person that he, he needed to kill, uh, was it a, a thousand? A thousand beings, I think, and, and cut off their fingers, at least a hundred, hundred or a thousand numbers. Huh? A thousand, thank you. And he strung their fingers, he cut off a finger. So he'd gotten up to, uh, he had one more to go. And it's said that the Buddha saw that he was gonna, um, he was going after his, his uh, mother, I believe, of his parents. And, and the Buddha sa- said, whoa, bad, real bad. Bad enough as it is, but this is even worse. So he went and got, got in the way there, in essence. And it said that Angulimala decided, oh, here's an easy target, chasing the Buddha. And, <laughs> and he couldn't catch the Buddha. Buddha's lifting, moving, placing. <laughs> Angulimala, ready to chop him, you know, and he can't catch him. And he said, stop, stop. And the Buddha said, I have stopped, Angulimala. It's you who needs to stop. And it said that in, in uttering that, it, it, it transformed him in that moment. And he, he, um, he came to the Buddha and, and bowed and said that he wanted to become a, a disciple of the Buddha. So I'm shortening the story a little bit. And it said that over, over time, he became fully enlightened. He became a bhikkhu under the Buddha and became fully enlightened, became an arahant. And it's said that um, he was very tender-hearted. And one time he was walking through the village on alms round and he heard a, a, a young woman who was having a very difficult time in labor, in childbirth. And he went back to the Buddha and said, uh, Lord, is there something we can do? Is there anything that we can do? And the Buddha said, go back to them and say um, that... Um, I've never harmed another being and by the utterance of this truth, may you be eased. And, and Angulimala said, I can't say that. I, I'm, a bad, I'm a serial killer here. I've had a bad past. <laughs> That's not, I can't say that. And the Buddha said, go and tell them since you took birth in the holy life that you have never harmed another being. And, the, and Angulimala said, that he wasn't, I don't know what his name was then. <laughs> I don't think he kept Angulimala as his name. But, uh, <laughs> he had a new Pali name. Does anyone know? I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> he, he said, I can do that. That's true. Since I have come into this life, I have never intentionally harmed another being. And he went back and he said, sister, since I have taken birth in the holy life, I have never intentionally harmed another being. By the utterance of this truth, may you be eased. And she was, said it worked, she was eased. And to this day, there is a parita chant. You know, I've spoken for those of you who come in the evening for metta chanting, that the metta sutta is a parita chant and there's, there's uh, the bojanga parita and there's an angulimala parita and it's used uh, still to, uh, it's offered uh, for women in child, in labor, in childbirth. Um, you can get, uh, you can find it online. <laughs> Beautiful chanting of it. Mm. 
And it's said that karma is our only true property. Thich Nhat Hanh said it this way, my actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the very ground upon which I stand. And uh, Saira Upandita said this, our concepts of ownership and control over material objects are basically illusory, for all matter is impermanent and subject to decay. Kama is our only reliable possession in the world. Kama has an immediate effect upon the mind, causing joy or sorrow, depending on whether it is wholesome or unwholesome. And it also has long-term consequences. Seeing life in this way gives us the power to choose the conditions under which we want to live. Thus, the view of kama as our true, reliable property is called the light of the world, for by it we can see and evaluate the nature of our choices. Right understanding of kama is like a railroad junction where the chain can train can choose the direction it wants to go. So the power of intention in the mind and heart is really vast has a vast potential for us, far-reaching consequences, and we really can choose and influence the direction we want to travel. We can choose the kinds of seeds we want to plant. We can choose to plant the seeds of happiness, of liberation, of peace. So let's, let's have another uh, couple moments of quiet now. Thank you for your kind attention this evening. And uh, there's some time for walking. And uh, if you have the energy, please come for the chanting. We're, we're getting quite good at it. And it's a short sitting. So maybe if you don't usually come, you might come and, and listen to the beautiful chanting. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.